So, Rebecca, welcome back to the podcast. It's been a long time. I know. It's been a while. People often say, where's Rebecca? How come she's, where is she? Did you, does she hate you now? Like, what's going on? <laughs> I hate you a lot. No, I'm planning an international trip, and it's taking a lot of my time. Yeah. Yeah. And you're actually in studio. Usually we're talking over Skype, and so it's really great to actually have you here. You brought Mochi, your dog, as yes. usual. Uh, my dog is in the other room, uh, Would even though my dog is probably 10 times bigger than your dog. My dog would be terrified of your dog. Well, my dog is very dominant. She <laughs> may be nine pounds, but she really lets people know what's that, up. That she's she's primary. So I know you have a few things you want to talk about, and I have some things I want to talk with you about. But first, I thought we would respond to some emails. What do you say? I'm totally down. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Rebecca? I am Rebecca Bloom, ATRBCLMHC. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and a board-certified art therapist with a private practice in Hillman City, Seattle, Washington. And you're also a landlord of other professionals. <laughs> I also manage a space. Somebody said to me the other day, you're the super. And I was like, oh my God, I am the super. <laughs> All right, so let's get into the, this email. I, I want to know your opinion on this, Rebecca. I've been saving these emails just for you. I'm so this, honored. This is an email from an anonymous patron. She writes, I have a question about my therapist. I feel like the boundaries and relationship have gotten confusing. confusing. I see him two or three times a week. Some days the sessions are two hours. Hmm. Occasionally they will be three to four hours. We text in between sessions. He makes a plan for me to text at certain time to check in, and he will often text or call me outside of those times as well. I've developed a, I have developed a deep relationship, deep attachment to him, and my feelings are very strong, which he told me was fine. There are times when he gives me a lot of attention, and there are times when I don't hear from him, though. This inconsistency makes me wonder what I did to deserve being rejected at times. What do you think about that, Rebecca? So I'm assuming this therapist framework is psychoanalytic. There aren't a lot of frameworks that require that much time of the therapist. I think that's too much time for me. Um, I, especially the, the scheduled calls and then the therapist calling outside of the scheduled times. Right. That doesn't sound psychoanalytic to me. No. It just sounds like a lot of therapy. Dependence. Yeah. yeah. I, this is an interesting question. I rarely do over an hour session. Occasionally I do a two hour session, which in clinical language is actually an hour and 40 minutes. Um, but man, could you go over that? Maybe in a family session. Very rarely do I go over an hour, even with couples and families. In the past I would mm -hmm. because my schedule was more flexible, I guess. But I don't really have any clients that need that. Very rarely I will. It's usually because of a crisis. Like I had a family go through an extreme horrible event the night before, mm. a death actually. And so I just said, and they had an emergency session, mm -hmm. and I just said, I got to block out the whole day. I, I don't mm. know how long I'm going to be with these people. Mm -hmm. You know, I just knew there was, I just, and it went for hours and hours, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so 
And I once had a th- I once had a client who actually asked me because uh, at the end of every session he's just he was like I feel like it takes me an hour just to get going, mm-hmm. and he's like could we do two hours? And we talked about it for a long time because I I. I resist that for a number of reasons. One, it's like, well, can't you just get going earlier, you know? And and it it, it and it costs you double, you mm-hmm. know. And and he was like, ah. It's, and then we decided we'd do it, and so every week we'd meet for two hours. But that was fifteen years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, so yeah, I don't I don't go over it now. Family therapists will often do it. When I did in home therapy, it was much more flexible because mm-hmm. you just don't really know what's going to happen or uh, all that kind of stuff. So. So yeah, uh, but I yeah I wouldn't I wouldn't personally uh, be attracted to that kind of thing. But I, I don't in and of itself it's not unethical or bad treatment, right? Right. I mean, the most I will do is a two hour session, and occasionally same story. Client just felt like it took a long time to let their defenses down, and so we met for two hour sessions for about a year, and it worked well. But the only people I see more than once a week are in extreme crisis. And it's time limited, and it usually doesn't last more than a few weeks. I don't contact clients between sessions because I want them to build up a support system outside of me. Yeah. So we might spend a long time figuring out what that support system is, but I would ask this patron back, what's your support system like outside of your therapist? Right. Which I suspect is not it's not well mm-hmm. and the main point of the therapy and I'll get more into the email later is to provide a stable attachment that can help her heal from the past or something so she can actually trust other people to build us you know a support system now so the model should not be a, a gut feeling about whether or not one a therapist should do longer sessions it should be based on the client need and your own professional limitations and uh, so for me, I've just had in the past five, 10 years, clients who actually don't even need weekly therapy. Mm-hmm. My, my, mo- all of my clients are, you know, what we call in the business high functioning. They're not, they're, their lives are going fine and they want to talk about emotional things, long-term exploration kind of stuff. And they don't necessarily need to uh, meet every week and so so it's always that kind of tension it's, and, and anyway going on with email just recently though he told me that he had similar feelings for me that were very strong including mm-hmm. sexual attraction he said he wanted to validate that i was feeling what i was feeling and that it wasn't fake and that i'm feeling that way because of how he feels about me too he said he didn't want to cross any boundaries and he said we couldn't work together anymore. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that, Rebecca? Uh, I'm glad that he did that. <laughs> it sounds like these two, he was was becoming really enmeshed, and it was bordering on inappropriate with this client. Like, what needs are this? Is this therapist working out, seeing this pe- person three to four times a week, calling them? Uh, what support system does the therapist have at this point? Um, yeah, it doesn't sound like a good match, and I'm glad that this therapist didn't follow through on these feelings. Right. Because they're just feelings. Right. She goes on, he's very interested in my relationship with my current romantic partner, and he is very adamant that I end it. When I spent the night with this guy, my therapist told me that he felt sick the whole next day and couldn't stop thinking about it. 
I really like that he seems to genuinely care about me. Any thoughts about that? Uh, that for me would be overstepping the boundaries. That first off, you're obsessing about a client outside of the session. Um, that's an issue to deal with in your own supervision. Uh, so I've been doing some research for my vicarious drama presentation. It's coming up. Oh, do you want to plug it? Uh, it, I think it's going to fill and be fine. So, but anyways, I'll be in Shoreline on May 4th or 5th, whatever that Friday is, uh, through Cascadia trainings. Uh, but you know, I'm looking. Shoreline community? No, it's at actually the old Shoreline high school. Oh. Um, that's now a community center. Okay. And Uh, where can they go on the website? Uh, it's CascadiaTrainings.com. And you you do trainings with Cascadia all the time. All the time. Okay. So, and you could also go to my website, bloomcounseling.com under the trainings tab. It's listed there. Uh, so anyways, I was looking at the grandmasters and their conceptualization of vicarious trauma and Judith Herman, who wrote, uh, waking the tiger, which is one of the original concepts around trauma treatment. She has this whole thing that she does about it's your client's life. Give the treatment back to your client. These are your client's choices. That's the best work is when the client is in control of the ship. And so when I hear this therapist saying I was up all night because you made a choice that I wouldn't make and it made me physically sick, that therapist is is internalizing a client experience, the client's experience that the client might not even be having but why are they so invested in the client's choices that's like a recipe for heartbreak right there right she goes on to say at what point is the therapy compromised he seems to be really concerned about losing his license (laughs) i don't want anything to happen to his license and i really want our professional relationship to continue what should i do what do you think she should do well if she reported him i don't know if you could lose your license for just being you might get reprimanded in some way he hasn't He's kind of crossing that boundary, but I don't know exactly what ethic code he's under. Uh, but yeah, I would say that this relationship is compromised. Um, once your therapist starts calling you outside of scheduled times, once your therapist starts informing you that they're sick over your life choices. Particularly romantic. I mean, that's yeah. the part of it that uh, we haven't talked about yet, which is, Not only is internalizing it in general, but it's a specific thing in terms of you could interpret this as him being jealous Mm -hmm. of her having a relationship with another man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's why he's sick. Yeah. And that's just kind of gross. So, like, I have clients all the time that are dating people. And I'll say to them, like, as your therapist, I have to say, like, is this the best partner for you? Um, But, you know, it that's about it. Right. Right. Just raise the question. Yeah. So I emailed her and she emailed me back, but I'll just go over what I emailed her. I said, first off, I'm really sorry that this happened to you. I don't know him, so it's hard for me to know what's happening. But in general, his behavior is problematic to your care. I have worked with tens of thousands of clients. Tens of thousands of clients? I said that I said that yesterday in class and like a, a colleague of mine laughed at me. So that must be an exaggeration. It must be thousands of clients. Like how many yeah. clients do you think you've worked I've with? I've probably worked with a thousand. I did a I did a back of the napkin calculation 5 years ago and I remember counting over 50,000 sessions. Whoa. You know what I mean? But half of those are 
repeats. Right. At least. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, most of them, Probably right? seven-eighths of them, you saw those person more than once. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, if not uh, the vast majority, especially once you get older in your career. Anyway, anyway, th- I'll go on with me. <laughs> I've worked with thousands of A clients. A bajillion. <laughs> yeah. I've worked with many clients, and I have been very close to many of them, but I've never done anything like this. And when I have significant countertransference, I deal, I deal with it. I talk with consultants about it. I talk with therap- my own therapist about it. And I, I very rarely will talk with my client about it. In fact, mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember a time that I would reveal this kind of struggle that I'm having with, with a client. It's just, what's the point in that, you know? And I've never terminated with a client because of my own problems. Do you know, like, it, it, now you said, which is correct, that if this situation has become compromised it's a it's a good choice for the therapist to pull out somehow mm-hmm. but at the same time bad I, word choice ha, have you <laughs> phrasing have you ever done that before have you ever terminated because of countertransference uh no <laughs> right so that's the point it's like it's like i i i think it it sh, if for sure if you're beyond the threshold that's what you should do yes. but at the same time it's like how did you let it get to that point, you know? Right. Why are you so... What is this client representing? This is when I wish the therapist would write in and be like, you right. know, what are you playing out here? Right. Who is this client to you? Who is this some kind of rescue fantasy? What are you up to? Right. So I go on email. Again, I don't know him or his situation, so who knows? But I've heard many other stories like yours over the past few years in which a male therapist crosses boundaries with a female client. Mm -hmm. There's always a slippery slope of boundary crossings. For example, more sessions, texting a lot, flirtation, phone calls, uh, you know, self-disclosures, this kind of thing. The client develops an intense transference of an attachment towards the, the therapist. And then at some point, the therapist suddenly announces that he is having feelings for the client and he abruptly terminates the relationship. Mm-hmm. The, and the client is left feeling harmed and abandoned. And this drives me nuts. I mean, don't these guys have someone to consult with? Don't, don't they have a therapist? Can't they manage their countertransference without having to process it with their own client? You know, I don't get it. Well, isn't it interesting in this Me Too movement that the male therapist is asking the female client to do so much of the emotional labor? Right. That these dynamics of sexism play out in this session. Totally. So I go on and I say, I'm, I'm really sorry this is happening to you. Again, if I met him, maybe I'd have sympathy, but so who knows? And then I said, you asked me what you should do. And I said, I don't know, but I'm worried about you. And then she emailed back and she said, thanks, Kirk. That helps. Yeah, I asked him if he had anyone to talk to about it or get advice. He said no, except for his wife, who was also also a counselor. But he doesn't tell her the full details of our situation. I wish he didn't tell me about his feelings for me because now things have changed. I think I'm going to tell him how I feel tomorrow and set better boundaries with him. Maybe that will stop it from progressing. I also am am upset because I just feel like it really is irresponsible of him considering what he knows about my past experiences. Presumably she's talked a lot with him about her own abandonment or sexual abuse history or something. I don't have any insurance right now. He is seeing me for free currently, so I wouldn't be able to get a new therapist if I had to. Any thoughts about that, Rebecca? So you've got a bunch of boundaries. How on earth is this guy affording to see a client several times a week for free? Well, 
I hate to be crass, but it's his dating life. Oh. Do you know what I mean? Like, like this the is the money role- he would the money he would have spent on porn. He's spending on seeing this or <laughs> dates on Tinder or something. Like again, that's super crass. We're if if really he were rude here, if he were here, maybe he would have something to say. Who knows? But uh, it's just another data point. So, right. So the 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 bottom line here is that the client you've done nothing wrong there's right. there's nothing that you've done wrong you've in fact you're a very nice forgiving person honestly yeah i mean i would say i would be curious if a domestic violence shelter might offer some free sessions or something because the power dynamics here are so intense and he's gone so far over the line and i would say the more we talk about this, I'm like, this is sexual abuse. Yeah. To put a vulnerable client in charge of your feelings, uh, to bring your sexual desires into the room with that power dynamic in place. I mean, th- he's gone way over the line. Totally. So I wrote back to her and I said, basically, the fact that he doesn't have a consultant is unethical. Uh, the fact that he talks with his wife about it is utterly unethical um and uh you have absolutely grounds to complain um almost every almost everyone i've talked to about this says the same thing when when they talk about situations like this they'll say i wish he would never have told me about it right well and also the idea that you're the only one is very small i mean sadly he has done this before or he will do it again right which, as much as you like him, that would be a reason to report because people with this low boundaries tend to repeat these offenses over and over again because they just don't learn. Yeah. So I have another email here asking for solutions to this. But before we get into that, Rebecca, uh, you emailed me. You wanted to talk about something. What was that? Well, I'm just interested in our culture's current uh, interest in protest. Yeah. And getting out in the streets and young people having opinions. I had a really powerful experience at the gun march, the gun rights march. And uh, I don't know. Did you go? No. When? What day was that? that it was, was like a, a month Monday ago. No, it was a Saturday. Oh, I thought it was during school. Kids. There was a walkout then, too. Yeah. Um, no, I didn't go. Well, one of the things that my son and other kids... I. This really hysterical thing of these two kids had gotten separated from these two teenagers had gotten separated from their big group and they kind of chose to hang with us and they were we were complete strangers and we had a series of misadventures. Um, But I really learned what they were up to. And they said something that was similar to what my son has said to me, which is that generation is considering themselves the lockdown generation Mm. and the amount of trauma that they've experienced either being in lockdowns or going through lockdown drills is beginning to define them wow and uh, i thought about all the conversations that you and i had had about trauma and um it's so great that now they're at the age that you know it's similar to the vietnam war which is a group of young people saying i cannot live with this being my future and I cannot live with this, with the kids below me having to go through this, too. And I've just found it super inspiring. How is your son doing with it? He, we really, we made signs. We but how's he doing with the trauma the process? He's, of, of the lockdown generation? Um, he's been in a situation, he's been in a small private school for the last two years. And so we've talked about how he hasn't been in it. 
and next year he's going to go back into it in a big public school environment. And I think he's really like the break from it. Um, you know, we've joked about lockdowns when he comes home, he's kind of joked about it, but I, you know, when those, when you get that text on your phone that your kid's school is in lockdown and then all the parents start texting each other, trying to figure it out. I mean, I can think of very few worse feelings yeah. that I've had. So those lockdown incidences traumatize an entire community and they're kind of happening now all the time. Right. Um, so I'm just curious if, you know, you work with young people, if people have talked about it and with you and all, or what are your thoughts about that level of trauma that these kids have experienced? I think it's awful. And I hadn't really conceptualized it as such until you say it, which I think is real for, and it's interesting, you know, to, to go through that and not only the drills and the actually going through it and the news reports, but also just the vibe of the country. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of talk about it and the, the news just plasters it so quickly and we see these graphic images and it's traumatizing to see that kind of stuff. I, I accidentally clicked on one of these instances. It was actually, it happened in South America, but it looked like, you know, it could have been in the United States and I every, and I, the images are going into my head right now. I just like very, I have a very distinct, memory of this video that I saw of this kid who killed other people and himself. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, I, I can tell you detailed like descriptions of everything that happened in a span of like 15 seconds or something. And it's traumatizing. It is when I was traveling in Europe, I w- you know, in certain situations I was like, I would give myself, you know, a 5% chance that a bomb's going to go off and I'm going to die right now because it's like the perfect place. Mm-hmm. There was this, we were in this train station. Actually, we were in France and we, in Paris and we were going to get on the channel to go to London. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the line was super long and there was this really long delay and no one was telling anyone what was happening. Like all the people online were like, are we in the right line? Are we in the right line? And the people were like, I think we're in the right line. Wait, are we for hours? We're just seeing, I was like, and it turned out that in London, there was, there was a bomb or a scare or something, something actually happened in London. Mm -hmm. And so they shut down all of the trains. Mm -hmm. And so they canceled one of them or something and they were going to put us on. Anyway, the point was, was this, this, we were right inside the front doors of this train station. Mm-hmm. And it was, there were thousands of people in this mammoth, you know, line. And I was like, man, if you had a bomb mm-hmm. and, and you wanted to, you know, kill a lot of people, like all you'd have to do is park a van, like, I don't know, 50 yards in that direction. We'd all be gone, you know? And, and the whole time I was just like thinking, okay, if I see a, a suspicious van, I'm going to, I'm going to bolt, you know? And, uh, so, you know, I go to a movie theater, I would say every, you know, every third time I go to a movie theater, I'm like, okay, if a, if a shooter en- enters this room, where am I going to run? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure a lot of people, do you think about stuff like that? Yeah. I was just thinking as you were telling that story. Um, so I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast, but we, 
lived in New York. I lived in New York for three years. I left September 7th, 2001. So we missed September 11th by under a week. And I definitely experienced it as a New Yorker, but I was back in Seattle. And so the conversations I was having with people, it was just so disjointed because it felt so close to me what had happened. And my wife had actually been a law clerk on an Al-Qaeda case, the bombers of the um, the embassy in Africa in like 95. So we immediately knew it was Al-Qaeda because of everything that she knew about how they operate. So that moment has kind of defined my life. And so we were in Seattle just trying to figure out what to do with ourselves. And we decided to take this road trip. And we went to a movie. I think we were in Santa Cruz or something. And the movie theater was practically empty. And the attendants at the booth were like, God, thank you so much for coming. Like, no one is leaving their houses. But it reminded me of that vibe after September 11th of how long it took people to trust to come back outside again totally i remember that day vividly and i coincidentally was driving downtown and i saw out of the corner of my eye a plane and it seemed low and i was like it's happening in, in you know in seattle turns out it was probably like at cruising altitude because mm-hmm. actually they go over downtown as they're landing in SeaTac, but just several events like that, you know, where, um, we're just, that's, that's why they do it. You know, they Mm -hmm. do it because they want us to be afraid and, and, um, but the school shooters have, I think a whole other kind of weirdness, but anyway, so you wanted to talk about the psychology of, of protesting. What, what did you want to talk about? Well, I just thought it was really interesting at the live event, the, People that approached me the most often talked to me about how my description of when I protested at the national conference for my field, how much that that had kind of gotten to them. Um, and I've been talking, I see a lot with my clients these days that it's so important to name who you are, to be active of who you are right now. Um, and, you know, it, I came from a household, we protested a lot when I was a kid. In fact, the joke in our house is I didn't eat raisins or grapes for most of my childhood because we were uh, aligning ourselves with Cesar Chavez and protesting in support of the migrant farm workers in California. Um, But, you know, not everybody grew up like that. And that for a lot of people, this time has been a big stretch. You know, it's, it's strange friendships, it's strange family relations, but this idea that it's, you know, this is the time to get out into the streets. And then it was so inspiring to see all these high school students organizing at such a dynamic level. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember the last time something like that happened where teenagers actually got up and had such a large event. I mean, this is the 60s? Was that yeah, the last I think it was, I mean, really, we're going back to the Vietnam War movement or in a small community, kind of an act up. I mean, those people weren't teenagers, but we were all like in our early 20s, yeah. you know, doing dying. But like specifically street. high school students, yeah. you know, I think that's amazing. That's And and I was surprised, actually. I was I was like, whoa, I, that's surprising that because that doesn't happen very often, you know, that they will that a number of them will actually get together and organize in that way. Um, I, th- I thought it was great. Yeah. So did you grow up in a household where? No. no. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, 
there's no uh i mean well we did well we did some things actually now that i think about it like we did a march it was a walk at seward actually around the park for reparations during reagan oh. for the uh, and you know imprisonment japanese. of japanese americans uh-huh. during world war ii because there was um a movement to get the government to acknowledge that it was wrong unconstitutional illegal and to uh pay money mm-hmm. it wasn't it wasn't about the money it was more about just the government admitting that they had done something wrong and and uh and reagan signed i can't remember the exact thing that happened but it was something that congress and reagan did that acknowledged that it was wrong and, and that was a big deal because imagine that you know growing up i grew up in a time in the 70s early 80s when the government was still basically saying like it was the right thing to do mm-hmm. <laughs> you know people were like yeah of course it was the right thing to do to imprison a bunch of american citizens for uh, for no reason uh yeah you know and and so not not only was it horrible but it was also like just unacknowledged by the government and mm-hmm. to have that happen was a big so i remember and we had shirts and and I didn't really know what was going on, though, because mm-hmm. I was too young. And But I remember the T-shirts. It had uh, Executive uh, 9066, and it had mm. uh, this very violent uh, barbed wire border on the script of everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, um, but, yeah, that's that's about it. My my family growing up was was not very political. Well, I am amazed when I get in these situations. It's like some sense memory comes over me and all of these chants come flying out of me. Give me one. Uh, Hell no. (laughs) We won't go. Well, what's funny is some of them require, like, you got to get a critical mass of people to do them. So I love, my current favorite thing is to talk strangers into joining my chant. So I'll, like, you know, we're... It's like, you know, you're all in this setting for a reason. But if you kind of approach someone, you know, they look at you a little suspicious. And so I'll say like, hey, do you have a loud voice? Or would you join me in my chant? Um, And this is actually a new one that I learned actually from a former student. She posted it on Facebook, which is to have the women say my body, my choice, and then have the men say her body, her choice. Mm. And we did it at the last Women's March that was my favorite one was talking to all these guys and being like, Hey, I'm going to do something, but I need your help. And then I would explain it to them and they were like, Oh yeah, I'm in. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure they'd be in for that. That's great. I was like, this is the best. This yeah. is like, this is what I hoped adulthood was when I was a kid hmm. was that, you know, adults on the right side of history being really loud in the street. Like there's nothing better for me. Like, so at the, Gun protest, what I thought was so interesting was the kids were running it and they were really on time. Like protests are famous for running really slow, right? You know you can be on the slow boat and you'll still make it. So we caught the light rail in – not the light rail, but the streetcar in the International District. And the guy comes on and he says, I'm only going one block. And then the streetcar is turning off because the march is starting. So I've got this group of people, including these two random teenagers with me. And I'm like, hey, let's just walk. And so by the time we get to Cal Anderson Park, the march is gone. Wow. Yeah. Because these kids, man, they started on time (laughs) and they were off. So we just start walking and there's just 
and we were like, oh, what are we going to do? Are we going to take the light rail downtown and meet up with the march, you know, at the Seattle Center? We're all kind of bummed that we've missed the march. And then we get over the crest of the hill where the Egyptian is, and we look down, and there's sir- there's red lights going at about the Paramount. And we're like, that's the end of the march. We can make that. <laughs> and we're just booking it. It's a different angle. Right. But it was like, once you hit that march, it was such a great feeling. Yeah. I'm like, oh, we've made it. Yeah. And all these people are as fed up and pissed off as we are. And I had made this really bizarre sign. It was kind of a stretch where it was Voldemort, but his cape said the NRA. And then the second to last Horcrux, you know how it was that snake? Mm-hmm. It said Congress. Ooh. Yeah. And then there were all these skulls up in the air. Like, is that the fifth movie where they... Don't ask me. Okay. <laughs> so where the... the Anyways, there's all these skulls up in the air with all of these organizations that are major funders to the NRA. Like what? Like... Uh, Vista Vista Outdoor is the company that owns the company that makes the AR-15. They're also the company that owns Camelback and Giro, which is why REI just uh, stopped carrying those products. Oh, interesting. Yeah. There's Lloyd's of London, which is the... Camelback is like the I know. Well, they've only owned that company for two years. So if you've owned that Camelback for more than two years, you don't have to feel any guilt. Um. So there's Lloyd's of London, which is a major financial backer and insurer. Uh, there's the whole FedEx scandal that some people have heard about. So those companies are kind of in the background in skulls. And then I had all these little, they're supposed to be little people, and written on the back of their T-shirts was like hashtag enough, hashtag Trayvon Martin. Um, it was more like a political cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> like a sign and you only about three people got it but i think those three people really appreciated what i was trying to say um because this the whole thing is very complex yeah. and after i think you summed it up pretty well the shooting i really started i was shocked to learn that the same company because i would never think of myself as someone who is casually supporting a company that supported guns right but this idea that camelback and Jira, which most kids' helmets, bike helmets, are by that company. Right. The idea that in this day and age, everything's so interconnected and you have to be so aware. Yeah. Um, so if you're protesting out there, I got your back. I think you're awesome. <laughs> keep, keep up the good work. Yeah. Well, let's take a break and we get back. I have a question for you. All right. All right, back from the break. If you haven't already become a patron, do so now. Go to patreon.com. Become a patron. You'll get access to all of our patron-only episodes. Also, you can buy Rebecca's two books on Amazon. You sure can. One is called Square the Circle, which is a art therapy workbook mm-hmm. that you can do solitaire. Mm-hmm. And the other book is called... The other book is called Attunement, and it's a series of mandala coloring pages. Awesome. Also, if you have trouble with the feed, email me at contact.psychologyinseattle.com if you're a patron. Also, you can buy my book called Multi-Role Clinical Supervision. I'm working on an audiobook book version. That's fantastic. I guess there's not a good audiobook version of an art therapy workbook. That is a common problem, yes. Yeah. Uh, join the Facebook fan group. Um, did you see the April Fool's joke that Umberto... No, I saw your post about it, but oh. I didn't... 
So Umberto, so I, I, I'll probably talk Umberto. about this with Umberto at some point, but <laughs> I just want to kind of get this uh, published is that, so I wake up, so, you know, midday, April Fool's Day. I'm not an April Fool. Are you an April Fool's person? I'm not an April Fool's person. Yeah. So I, but I knew it was April Fool's and I, and I, and I'd seen some things on Reddit about April Fool's. In fact, I purposely avoided Facebook that day because last year I'd gotten sucked into so many things that ended up being April Fool's. <laughs> So many things. So many things. <laughs> well, so uh, I see a post that my Facebook site, the Psychology in Seattle page, has posted on the fan group that we have ended the podcast. And it, and it's written very professionally and, and very convincingly. And And at first I thought, Oh my God! What Russian hackers? Right, I thought someone hacked the the account. I thought like one, someone hacked the account, and two, why would they do that? Like that's a weird thing to do. Um, and then I I and then I knew that I could get in and delete it. But before I deleted it, I texted Berto and I was like, "Did you just did you just post a joke or something?" And then while before he replied, I looked at some of the comments because people were commenting. And someone said, oh, April Fool's, I get it. Oh. And I was like, oh, April Fool's. So I'm like, I was I was right there with everyone else being punked by by this thing. And then um, and then I, I didn't read the rest of the comments because it's on the Facebook fan page. And so I'd kind of leave that alone. But I heard that people were crying Aww. literally. And because it's, again, because it's written so... You like effectively, and people don't know that Umberto is an admin of the page. You know, they naughty, they, naughty. they would have thought it was for me, and I'm not the sort of person to do an April Fool's joke. <laughs> so anyway, that was uh, that was uh, interesting. Um, also, we have our 10 year show coming up August 11, 2018. It is going to be at the North City Wine and Bistro and Wine Shop. North North City Bistro and Wine Shop. I think it's just the North City Bistro, which is just up here. So I hope you can come to that. Yeah. What day is it again? Saturday, August 11th. Uh, I will be in Turkey. Oh. Sorry, I can't make it. Bummer. Well, just cancel your plans. <laughs> I mean. Actually, I will be on the southern coast of Turkey investigating ancient ruins of a culture that builds into stone. Wow, sounds fascinating. So, uh it's going to be I'm still working at the details, but go to Facebook to learn more details. Okay, my question for you, Rebecca, is that I am interviewing Irvin Yalom tomorrow. What the What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kirk Honda. I know, right? Sits with the one of the top five psychologists of our generation, if not in the history. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think of another person that would be as renowned. Mnuchin. Who? Mnuchin, but he's dead. But he's dead. I'm just trying to think of an, a live Alive. therapist. Who... Uh, the, what's her name? Marshall Linehan. Yeah. But she's not as revered. I mean, no. people just love Yalom. Like yeah. they just, and are you a reader of his nonfiction books as well? No, but I've heard they're good. I mean, this is the most hysterical part. Is I, saw his I saw the movie that was based on oh, really? one of the books. Yeah. Which one was it? When Nietzsche Wept. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. So not only is he one of the greatest theologians of our field, 
but he's also a really funny nonfiction writer. So it's kind of like overwhelming. It's like if your therapist was David Sedaris and you're like, how is that possible? Right. So, yeah. So this, this episode will come out probably after the episode I post about Irvin Yalom. But, um, yeah, I've been telling everyone around me and you're the first person to actually have the reaction that I would have had, <laughs> which is like utter shock and amazement. Other people are like, huh, that's interesting. And I'm like, I'm trying to like tell them, like, I don't think you understand. Like in our world, Irvin Yalom is like, is like talking to Elvis himself, you know, and they're just, and, and people I've even told other therapists, you know, and who don't really know the history of our field or something, mm -hmm. or don't know of him that well. And they're like, well, you can't really compare it to Elvis. And I'm just like, I don't know, man, in our world, He's, so what's the scenario? What's the, is it a podcast? Is it a yeah. person? It's a podcast. I'm just going to interview him. I, I, I have so many questions, but I, I bet you do. I now, how did you it. reach him? I, so a listener emailed me and said, you should have Irvin Yalom on the podcast. And I said, that's ridiculous. He's never going to be on my stupid podcast. And she said, well, you know, it's worth a try. And I was like, okay, fine. So I emailed him, and he emailed me back. That's amazing. Yeah. So I tried to impress you earlier with my Twitter conversation with Andrew Johnson, the famed guided meditation app guy. Yeah. But this so eclipses that. And I was <laughs> ecstatic. I was, like, beyond myself. I thought I was the coolest person. I thought I was the best person ever. But hands down, man, that's amazing. So, Rebecca, what, would you ask what should I ask him? There's so many questions. Well, there's so well. So he's currently very involved in Talkspace, I believe. I believe he's on the board. Mm -hmm. so, I didn't know that, but I knew he was involved in Talkspace. Yeah. So he initially hated it. Yeah, I just read his memoir. Actually, okay, you're prepared. And he hated everything about it. He hated everything about phone therapy. He hated everything about text therapy, video. Con he hated all of it. And then somehow he did some research and found his way to actually understand that it can be good or something. So, so that, but I don't, so maybe I should ask him about that. Yeah. I would as I would, if I were going to listen to that podcast, which I probably won't because I'll be so jealous. <laughs> this is like, do you know that the art therapist, this art therapist got to have a session with Stephen Colbert and they did a segment and it was on his show. Oh really? And, no one asked me, Rebecca, how are you handling your jealousy that another art therapist Was gets. the Colbert segment based on Mrs. Pence? Yes. Oh, interesting. But he goes to art therapy in order to explore what it is. And the art therapist does a bridge directive with him and some other really classic stuff. And it's so amazing. But my jealousy was kind of through the ceiling that that wasn't me. <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to contain my jealousy. Um, so I would love to hear from him his thoughts about the future yeah. of therapy and... Um, and also his thoughts about the past. I mean, in writing about group work, I so remember him saying, you know, a group is a member, group members, there's five to 10 members, a closed group that meets for eight to 10 sessions. And like, that just doesn't happen anymore. Right. So how does he conceptualize the work that he originally wrote about in our modern times? Yeah. Um, there's so, and then when did he start writing none? When did he start writing fiction and why? Yeah. Um, is he still at Stanford? He was at Stanford forever. Yeah, uh, I think he retired ten years ago, and but he from Stanford, but he still has a practice, mm -hmm. and he still writes, and he's like eighty-seven or something. That's amazing. Yeah, this is like, and there's just a documentary that just came out about him called, oh. called Yalom's Cure. Okay, um, like on Amazon, where can I get it? I, 
I saw it on, I think, a Russian website of oh. some kind um, that had a lot of pop-up ads. But, uh-huh. it's, it's, but it's viewable there. And it's really, it's good. You know, you get to see his, his home and his little office shack that's off the side and near Palo Alto or in Palo Alto. And his relationship with his wife and, you know, his life, they go through all that. And so, so I forgot why. So I, I thought I would open my email with him and look up what he's currently trying to plug. And it was this memoir, right? And so when I emailed him, I was like, I really want to talk to you about this memoir. Because I thought that might hook him to be like, oh, yeah, I'm trying to plug the memoir. So so I'll come on some stupid podcast to, to plug to the five people listening to it. And uh, But I quick, quickly forgot when, I, when he replied back, I had completely forgot that was the conceit as to why I asked him. <laughs> and, and then I proceeded to... As you can see, I have a bunch of his books over here, and I was like going to read all of them, and I had all these questions. And then I emailed him the other day to confirm, and he's like, just, and just to remind you, we're going to talk about my memoir, right? And I was like, oh, my God, I totally – I don't even have it. So I ran to third place books and bought it and had to brag to the person at the cashier, I'm interviewing him. And she was like, oh, great. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so I – uh, yesterday sat down after work and thought I would read, you know, the first, you know, couple chapters. And I read the entire thing. Mm. I read his entire memoir in one day mm-hmm. and was just utterly fascinated. He was a student of Virginia Satir. Oh, wh- wow. Which I actually knew, but he writes about that. Mm-hmm. He writes about, he, he hired Rollo May to be his therapist and was there when he died, was oh, holding wow. his hand when wow. he died. And, and Rollo May and his wife gave, so, um, Irvin and his wife were going through some troubles, like in their fifties or something. And Rollo May gave them ecstasy, high, high grade ecstasy, he called it. And they did it and together with Rollo May. And for whatever reason, that fixed their marriage because they spent like hours talking about the meaning of life and how good life is and everything. And for, and then after that, they never had problems again. And he said he never used ecstasy again. <laughs> so I want to ask him about that. I need some high grade ecstasy. My God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he talks about how he loves to gamble and, oh. and he, as a kid, he ha- ran a, um, like a number scheme at school hmm. And made a bunch of money, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, he didn't scam the people. It was a legitimate, it was illegal, but it was a legitimate deal with, you know, they, people knew what they were signing up for and he made a lot of money and he loved well, playing poker. Well, that speaks to how he knows people. I mean, I, that's the most interesting part for me about his work is it's so clear that through his humor and his intellect and his compassion, he knows people. I mean, that's why everybody loves him because some of these theorists are crazy yeah, and some of them are not nice people. Well, right. So he talks about meeting Viktor Frankl Oh, and he had a, and Viktor Frankl came to the United States, stayed in his house to do some talks in California at Berkeley or something. And he, he talks for like three pages about what an asshole uh, mm-hmm. Victor Frankel was. 
which is another god in our field, right? Right. And we haven't even talked about how Bessel van der Kolk just got called out for bullying and is no longer steering the ship of this practice that he's had for 30 years. Interesting. So, you know, there are, the people in our fields can be complete jerks. Right. And I always got the feeling that Yalom was the type of guy like you just wanted to hang out with. Right. Right. Yeah. And I was shocked as I was reading him just completely out Victor Frankel as an, not only as an asshole, but super insecure too. Mm. Like he said that he sent him a uh, manuscript of a book that Victor Frankel was going to publish later in his life. And there was this passage where he was talking about how he gave a talk and they gave him five standing ovations. And, um, uh, Yalom was like, oh, that doesn't, that, this sounds like he's bragging, but mm-hmm. how do I tell him that? And so he very nicely like wrote back to him and said, you know, when you say this, it kind of sounds like you're, you're trying to brag. And, and I, so I would just, I would just tone this down a little bit. And then, uh, Victor Frankel called him up and said, but Irv, you don't understand. I had five standing ovations. You don't get it. Yeah. Like, and he's like, oh, okay. You know, like he's like Victor Frankl didn't get it at all. He's Mm -hmm. like, but you don't get it. I had five standing ovations. So of course I'm going to write about that, you know, (laughs) and all of these kinds of trials and tribulations with, with Victor Frankl. And, um, it's all in the, it's all in his memoir. Anyway. Yeah. So I'm excited and I'm sure I'm going to fuck it up because I'm going to be too nervous. Well, so should we work on a coping some coping strategies? Yeah, what should I do? <laughs> so, uh, what's going to keep you grounded while you interview your hero? I don't know. That's what I need from you, Rebecca. Well, uh, do you want to make like a playlist that you listen to beforehand that gets you really kind of steady? Oh, interesting. I don't know if that works for me. Do you need like a squishy or something that to hold while you're talking to stay focused? Yeah, as long as it doesn't make noise. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's going to be over the phone, which is your least favorite way to do it, right? Yeah. He's not coming over. No. Yeah, he's in California. <laughs> so you're going to have to handle those technical difficulties and know that it's going to be okay. Yeah. You see, my hope is is that he's going to be like, oh, my God, Kirk Honda is the coolest guy. I want to hang out with him all the time. Um, so I need to let go of that one because that one will trip me up. That's so funny because I have these same feelings about RuPaul mm. that I'm just like destined to run into RuPaul and we're destined to become best friends because we both spent time as young people in San Diego. So like clearly we, we have <laughs> so much in common and, uh, you know, it's just not going to happen, but I really want it to happen. Yeah. And I, and as I review his life and his career, I can't help thinking about how I have basically been trying to be like him my mm-hmm. the past ten years. Mm-hmm. He is he's a therapist, and so he you know works really hard to be a good therapist. He was a teacher of psychotherapy for many years at a university. He tried in his time the way you reached out to people was through writing right Mm -hmm. you didn't there was no podcast or youtube or anything and he made videos too by the way and and he networked a lot Mm -hmm. he traveled a lot he talked he gave talks you know he just he got himself out there and worked on how to better himself always and worked on how to uh communicate and inspire people and 
I just think that is essentially what my mission statement is. I mean, I'll never be like Yalom, but it, it, I can't help but to, to want to ask him something about that. Like, how do I be, how do I, how do I continue my path in your path? <laughs> your what are my next steps for my future, Irving Yalom, Dr. Yeah. Irving Yalom? Yeah, yeah. What do I do next? Yeah. But, I also want to ask him about death because... Mm, I guess that was one of his books yeah. that just came out. And or, he's staring at the sun mm-hmm. and he's written a lot about death and thought a lot about it. I mean, he's existential there. Right, he said he's really ready for death. Yeah. And so I want to talk with him about that. And he writes about that in his memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway. So are you going to be able to sleep tonight or are you going to be like... God, I don't know. It'll be like Christmas morning. <laughs> Santa Yalom. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations. This is like a very, very special experience. Thanks. It, it really is something to congratulate. It's like, I'll never forget it, you know? Even if it doesn't happen, I will if, I will never forget I almost talked to Yalom. You know what right. I mean? Like, it'll... Or like, here's what I think is going to happen, is you're going to have an amazing interview, and then it's not going to record <laughs> and yeah. you're going to be like, this. it's going to be the ultimate existential crisis. <sighs> if you interview Yalom and it doesn't take to the tape, did it really happen? It's like, that would be perfect. And then you just have to retell it. Then it would be like the ultimate storytelling experience is that you just have to retell your time with And Yalom. every time I tell it. It'll get better. Better and better, yeah. <laughs> well, you joke, but I'm using a new program to record it tomorrow for the very first time i've tested it kind of but do you have a backup system going? no i don't know uh, how to do such things i don't know how to do such things i mean i suppose i could ask him to record it on his end too but but anyway so what i'm going to do is i'm actually going to talk with him for about you know 30 seconds record it because i've done that with you yeah. it's like a stop make sure it's recording and then that usually kind of makes makes sure it's not, it's working who knows anyway so well, well wowie kazowie Thanks. That's like, I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd be able to sleep tonight. I was thinking other people that would be in that high on high for me uh, would be Pima Chodron. I don't know who or that person. She is a Buddhist monk, a white Canadian Buddhist monk. She might be American actually, but she runs a, a place in um, way out in Canada. Um, and she's one of the most amazing speakers on mindfulness that's out there. I don't think I could sleep the night before if I was going to talk to Pima Chodron the next day. Right? Yeah. I mean, if we go outside of psychotherapy, you got Paul McCartney or Barack Obama or someone, you know. But but honestly, in our field, yeah, I'm just I just can't think of anyone in our field that's so universally looked up to. I mean, John Gottman is kind of up there, but, but he's not... like a local. Like everybody yeah. said, contact with him. Right. Like Yellow is just kind of like farther afield. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and the fact that he, for me, it's the fact that he also writes fiction novels. Like he's not just a boring psychotherapist. He is actually really funny as a human. Right. Yeah. And he is, he's been self-disclosing since the beginning, you mm-hmm. know, like he loves executioner is standard reading for first quarter counseling and psychotherapy students, you know, 
Did you have to, did you have that? Well, at my school, we had two quarters of group therapy concept because art therapists are often writing groups. So you read his book. So we read group therapy. Yeah. And in fact, I remember this is one of like the early memories when I was in graduate school, like I'm having a really different experience. So I walked into the room and I'm like, oh, let's shut the door to make sure there's safety. And I like was quoting off of his stuff. And then I realized, I think I'm the only person that did the reading. Because <laughs> everyone else was looking at me like, what on earth are you doing? And I'm like, I'm creating a container. <laughs> Just like y'all told me to. So your classmates were lazy or something? There was quite a range going on. I wouldn't say I was, they were, you know, I'm friends with a lot of them now. So I'm not going to say like they were lazy. I'll, let's just say that I was kind of on hyperdrive hmm. and I was not throwing away my shot. Like I was quite convinced that getting this master's degree was my only option for a viable future. Hmm. Um, so I was... A viable future for happiness or money or money. what? There really? Was no, yeah. I couldn't figure out what else I was going to do. Interesting. Um, There's so many things you could have done. Well, now I know that. Oh. <laughs> like looking back, I'm like, I should have been a, a house soup, stager. A I should could have been a super. Um, now that I understand everything about heating systems and toilets and lighting systems. Um, but at the time, I was really worried about my financial future. Um, and so I took graduate school very seriously and read all the readings and wrote all the papers on time and was always prepared which you know other people i don't know if this was like when you were in graduate school but some people had a really different vibe going on they were maybe their spouse or their parents were paying for it and they were way more casual yeah absolutely um but i've i don't know i i was i i can be kind of casual myself so so i i probably would have been one of those students I mean, I took papers and assignments very seriously, but the readings, because I'm such a slow, difficult reader that um, I, I would often skim or just not. Oh, no. See, I finally used the technique from my 12th grade history teacher, which I still teach today, which is that when you read, you have a separate piece of paper sitting to the side. And you write all the bibliographical information of that book at the top of the paper. And then you handwrite, like, the page number and the quote. So then when you go to write your paper... Oh, my God. It's easy to assemble because you've got your notes right there. Yeah, I... time-consuming. Time-consuming, but also with my dyslexia, you know, I can't recall... I can't pull anything up. Oh. It's got to be written down. Interesting. Um, so I, I'm... Very sure. I made my peers a little nutty because I was working at that level. <laughs> You're making us look bad. All right. So let's go on to another patron email. As I was talking about earlier, he writes, Hi, Kirk. I've listened to your episodes about therapists who cross boundaries due to erotic countertransference. These are the types of issues that are too easily ignored or swept under the rug. Several years ago, I began treating a, a young woman. I was in my 40s. And she was younger. I had been married for several years. And I was listening to this very appreciative young woman describe the most intimate details of her sexual life and behavior. This pushed a lot of buttons in me, and I found myself thinking about her all the time. Eventually, I recognized 
that this treatment could very easily go off the rails. So I got supervision and started therapy again, both of which were very helpful in allowing me to regain my therapeutic distance and balance. And through this process, I got her out of my head outside of the therapy sessions. It was it was a very powerful lesson for me and made me very aware of the slippery slope that can happen for therapists. By the way, five years later, we are, st- we are still working together. She's flourishing in her life, and I feel proud to have been a small part of that. Any thoughts about that, Rebecca? Uh, well, congratulations to that person for doing all the right things. I mean, we fall for our clients or fall out of love for our clients for all different reasons. And to acknowledge that those reasons are our own is really important. You know, I have a couple clients that come up in my therapy session often because they're so much like my mom or, you know, it's like my shadow self come to life. Um, so, yeah, the work is always present. And to keep that work with you and not put it back on the client is really important. And I hear stories all the time from my peers. You know, this client has told me that they're really attracted to me. And does that mean we can't work together anymore? And what should we be doing? Um this dynamic of therapy is so intimate, and especially in our culture now, you know, imagine being in the same room with somebody and having your phone off for 45 minutes. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> who else does that happen? You don't do that for your children. You don't do that for your spouse. You don't do that for your parents. Like, Interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Um, so here you are and telling each other so many private things. Um. So, yeah, it does happen, It's but it's our work as therapists to handle it when it does happen. Right. I commend you, patron, for doing what many have not in terms of people who have, you know, emailed me and said about their therapists that they have not. We just talked about one earlier in this in this episode. You notice that she was pushing your buttons. You recognize that it could become a problem. You weren't too ashamed to admit it to yourself, and you weren't too ashamed to, to seek help. You sought consultation. You sought therapy, um, which is the standard protocol, by the way. And kudos to all the supervisors and the therapists that hold that content for somebody else. Right. Because that's where the really brave stuff happened. And when I was supervising students, these crazy ethical violations would go down, and we would have to hold them as professors. Um, and it's... It's not easy no, work. It's no, messy. No, but at the very least, as supervisors and professors, we need to explicitly tell our, um, you know, su- supervisees and students that it's okay to talk about it. Right. Bring this stuff in here. This right. is where it belongs. I have done that with my supervisees, and just this last few months two different supervisees came forward and told me that they were struggling with this, uh, a male and a female. And they both said that they didn't feel comfortable telling their other supervisors Mm -hmm. or their other instructors. And so, and you know, part of that is my relationship with them, but also a part of it is that I explicitly said, by the way, if you're struggling with this, it's totally fine to talk about one and it's normal too. And honestly, if you don't talk about it with me, that's a problem. Yeah. So, uh, so the, one of the worst things you can do as a therapist is be attracted to your client and not talk to your supervisor about it. And there's other dynamics that are equally as hurtful. I mean, the one I see the most often 
is a supervisee saying to me, I think I'm the only person to reach that will be able to reach this client. Right. In which I always say, no, you're not. Right. Yeah. I just had a conversation with, I have a bunch of supervisees who are about to graduate. And mm-hmm. so they're about to transfer all their clients to other uh, therapists. And so they are scared about the treatment and about, and they're worried about them getting good care later on. And so I could sort of sense it in the room. And so I just said, when I was at your stage, I had this thought that there wasn't a single client that I transferred that I felt good about. Mm-hmm. Not There wasn't a single client that I let go of and transferred to another therapist where I was like, you're in good hands. Because I had this narcissistic notion that I was the only one who could help this person. And you had to be exactly like me. Otherwise, it wasn't going to work, which is, of course, ridiculous. Um, and then I also said, I've had th- clients transfer to me, and usually it goes well. You know, it doesn't, it's not, it's not a disaster. So, uh, so by definition, so it, to reconcile that, I either have to be the only good therapist on the planet, or there's something wrong the way I think. I think it's the latter. Can I just add one more point? So I'm about to go on a three month sabbatical, and I'm having this conversation about not quite termination, but kind of a midterm handoff <laughs> with all of my clients. This is where you're going to you're going to Turkey. I'm going uh, to Spain, Croatia, Romania, and Turkey for three months. The entire journey will be three months. Wow, seventy two days actually with your son and wife. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I don't know really what to call it. Is it like kind of like I'm skirting the Mediterranean? I don't know quite <laughs> how to describe what I'm up to. Um, but anyways, I'm doing this. And so I'm coming up with a list of people to, who have agreed to take my clients. And I'm starting to have that conversation with my clients of who on this list are they going to choose? And then I'm trying to imagine handing off all these clients. And then what if they like that other therapist better and then they don't come back? You know, I mean, these are all the things of my ego that I'm having to deal. And then part of, you know, and then there's that fantasy of like, you know, then then they'll come back to me having been with this other person. And they'll know? be like, oh, thank God you're back. <laughs> well, make sure you choose a colleague that's a really bad therapist. <laughs> I should write that on the list. Like, these are all really bad therapists and you'll be back to me in three months. Right. Um, but yeah, there is a part of this work. It's so intimate that, you know, your ego kind of gets in there. Yeah. And um, Right. So I commend you, patron, for doing the right thing. Um, things worked out. You found success. You didn't cross any boundaries. You didn't harm the client. In fact, it seems you really helped her. Uh, you didn't lose your license. You didn't get sued. Did you get any high-grade ecstasy that put your marriage back? <laughs> yeah. Um, and perhaps best of all, or more realistically, the consequence of lying awake at night, being ashamed of having done something, mm. you, you're not having to suffer from that. Mm-hmm. So good for you. Um, so you also asked, could you discuss techniques for how to remain aware of this problem and how mm. to deal with it? Also, what sort of clients might provoke erotic countertransference? Any thoughts about that, Rebecca? <sighs> well, I, I am lucky as an art therapist because we have a built-in technique of discharge drawings, which is at the end of the session if or at the end of the day um, – I often make an image. So if there's a client that I'm really experiencing a lot of issues with, there's all kinds of art directives around that. So one is to just make a spontaneous image. The other is to make an image of yourself with the client's diagnosis. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. 
um, which can be really powerful because you're getting triggered for something in you. Um, so, yeah, I think that's some of it is to figure out what in you is getting triggered and why. Is it your own attachment issues? Is this a, Are you slipping into a caregiver role rather than being a therapist? Do you need to be seen as attractive? Like, are, are you lonely? I mean, this work is really lonely. Is this your own? Is this the only person in your life that's telling you you're great? Yeah, that's actually amazing. I think that that's probably likely for a lot of people in this situation because there's a there's a I think a lot of people are walking around feeling very unattractive or unappealing or unwanted by their spouse or otherwise, and then you have this client who is physically attractive and who very much wants to talk with you and very much wants to share things with you. It's natural to have the um, notion of of the self of like well this person wants me and what if i wanted them back you know and what if we wanted each other and what if we were together i could feel this way all the time it would feel great you know and of course it's just a fantasy um yeah so my my thoughts i i took some notes here because i wanted to kind of formalize my thoughts here but overall you need to have a countertransference management system for all countertransference, whether it's erotic or otherwise. Um, and this is what my recommendation regarding the overall countertransference management system looks like for me. One is, is that I try to manage my, the enactments that are happening with clients or inducements or projective identifications. Uh, research shows that outcomes are better when therapists have a countertransference management system, um, which is not just awareness, but actually having routines and it being comprehensive. So there are some people when I talk to them and I'll say like, what's your countertransference? They'll be like, Oh, I'm not having any. Or, or they'll be like, Oh, well, I don't know what you mean. Like this client doesn't remind me of my mom. I don't know what you're talking about. Like their, their, their understanding of countertransference was like one chapter in one book that they read in, in graduate school. I've also seen that people misidentify countertransference as a bad thing. Right. Like if they're having countertransference, that means they're bad. Right. And so, so they avoid it. And, you know, but you, the, what I tell people is if you were really paying attention, you're probably always having a mixture of various different feelings and reaction to everyone you're interacting with, let alone clients. And you might not be aware of them all the time. Some of them become quite intense, but you're probably having various different feelings all the time, and, and you need to have a routine about that, and it needs to be comprehensive. So you need to detect things, you know, if a client is talking explicitly about sex, um, then uh, that might be a red flag that they are trying to induce something in you, you know what I mean? So it's not for sure, but you just have to have a, a way of like, oh, is this one of those situations where through projective identification or an enactment where I'm going to start feeling things? You know, you, just, you should know contexts that create common countertransference. So I'd like to share my categorization of that. Great. So I use the chakra system. So if I've got a client that's always talking about sex – also, drugs and money fall in there. I begin to conceptualize them as this is a second chakra client. And it gives me a level of distance that this is their experience. They probably do this all over the place. It's not just special for me. Um, but I think having that level of conceptualization just helps me have distance in this situation. 
Right. They're not telling me this story. That was my dog. Yeah, it was your dog's it. ears <laughs> flapping. <laughs> she may be nine pounds, but most of it is in her ears. I like um, how one's floppy and one's not. <laughs> one's always floppy. Hashtag those ears. Check out Instagram for more on that. Um, so, yeah. You just sometimes it's having to conceptualize your client's behavior. I just had this in a supervision session the other day that we were talking about what is special to the client and what is the diagnosis. And for some clients who haven't felt like they've had much to connect about, talking about sex is one of the easiest things we do as humans. Um, so it can be kind of escapist for your client to be really focusing on their sexuality. And it can be kind of avoidant as well. So there's all kinds of ways to, to conceptualize people's behavior beyond thinking, oh, this is special for me and I'm turned on. Right, exactly. So what we're both talking about is the notion of conceptualizing what's happening in session and understanding the process, having some model or language in your mind about what is happening other than just reacting to it naturally, if that makes any sense, you know? Um, so that's number one is manage. You, you want to have, you want to manage the experience and be aware of it. Number two is don't shame yourself. When you shame yourself about these feelings, it drives it underground and it becomes 10 times worse. Number three is you want to stick to the, the frame of therapy as, as a therapist, which often means one hour a week and no texts or emails or phone calls in between sessions. Unless you formalize that in a treatment plan and consult about it and justify it and have a frame that's consistent over time. Uh, you know, the previous email we had someone who it sounded like the therapist would meet with the client anywhere between two hours a week to 10 hours a week and would uh, talk with or text with the client anywhere between never in the week or several times during the week. So it's not a matter of, you know, if you, if you can justify 10 hours of therapy and two phone calls in between sessions and you formalize that in a treatment plan and it, and it's, and it holds water and you stay consistent to it and you're okay with it and the client wants that, then then go for it. But to have something that is all over the place and haphazard uh, is harmful in the way that that previous emailer said in that she felt like, well, what did I do wrong this week to have my therapist not pay as much attention to me this week as they did before? Now, some clients don't care because they don't have relational attachment issues, but usually the clients that are asking for that much contact, they are those kinds of people. And so... So there's, so you want to stick to the frame. Um, number four is you, you should be in therapy. Uh, I, I recently had a, uh, a student contact me at Antioch. This is a very rare thing to have happen because most, most of the students are, have been in therapy or are in therapy. Right. But I had one student email me and she, she was like, so do I have to, cause we now require people to get therapy, which is amazing. Yeah. Which <laughs> Don't is, go to graduate school to be a therapist without being in your own therapy. Right. Please. Yeah. And we only require 20 hours before internship, which mm -hmm. internship at the earliest is like a year out. Often it's two years out. So on average, you have like two years to, to do 20 sessions. So it's like once a month, you know what I mean? And so the uh, requirement isn't that big of a deal. So I had a student that said, um, I, I don't have anything to talk about. And I just wanted to reach through the email and just go, oh, honey. <laughs> 
Oh, oh, honey, honey. <laughs> um, you better find something. Well, that you know that the statement is so indicative of a lack of awareness. You know, it's like you have nothing to talk about with a therapist. All the more reason <laughs> that you need to be in therapy. You know, so. Um, you know, but I couldn't say that obviously, so I so I just reiterated the policy and said, you, you know. <laughs> "Thought get your act together." I just I just said, "I'm sorry." There's you know, if you want to ch- <laughs> if you want to lobby to change the policy, you can do that. But until then, you have to you have to so you have to find something to talk about. Number five, consult. Obviously, um, every therapist should have at least one or two colleagues that they can tell anything to. Not just you know, and I, really, these are your best. I mean, this is my favorite part of being a therapist. You're one of these people for me. Like, yeah. I love, and I have told you, like, some of the most ridiculous, painful parts of my life. Like, that's the best part about being a therapist is right. you have these relationships with your peers yeah. because the work is so strange. Yeah. And therapists should be, or at least, you know, many of them are good listeners and non-shaming people. You and I strive to be that way. Although and, I shame you as often as I can. Yeah. And so um, we, uh, so there's no better profession, uh, theoretically, for having colleagues that you should be able to, to say anything to. Um, when I tell, when I ask therapists, you know, who, who can you consult with? They'll be like, oh, yeah, I have a few people. And I say, well, who can you tell them about your most shameful thought you've ever had in therapy, you know, with a client, you know, who can, they're like, well, I don't, I don't know if I have anyone like that. And I'm like, well, you need to have someone like that because, uh, those are the most important things you need to consult about. Um, number six is awareness and mindfulness. You were talking about this earlier, just being aware of where your mind wanders, you know, you're in session and your mind is wandering towards some sexual fantasy or in between sessions, your mind is wandering towards some sexual fantasy. You need to be aware of that and you need to put an end to it. You can't, if you encourage those kinds of fantasies, you know, people will be like, well, they're just fantasies. You know, my, it's my mind. I've had arguments with people about this before and I'm just like, yeah, but if it's, you know, if you're outside of your profession, go for it. You know, you want to fantasize about your third grade teacher or the plumber or, you know, the clerk. At I mean, McDonald's. this is what Instagram is for, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but to, fantasize about your client actively you know if it pops into your head whatever but if you actively do it to yourself you are compromising your the treatment and your client you're you're encouraging a neurological process that um, may affect the therapy and you don't need to be fantasizing about that there's so many other things you could be spending your time you know doing (laughs) Um, so that's what i say about that Number seven is strengthen your attachments. You're talking about this earlier in terms of making sure your attachments in your real life are strong. Number eight is explore your romantic and sexual needs. Often I have found anecdotally that when people break boundaries, their romantic and attachment life is terrible and they're desperate for somebody and so they turn to their clients right so watch the movie election to um get a master class and why people <laughs> step outside of the bounds uh and the last one number nine is keep it in your effing pants people <laughs> this you know have integrity 
This is a profession. You're not chatting with your buddies. This is a probably a- keep it in your pants with your buddies too. I mean, I don't know about you. <laughs> well, but you know, go for it. It's, it's fine. But you're a professional. Imagine if your physician said to you. I'm sexually attracted to you while you're getting a gynecological exam. You know, oh, you know, I've been fantasizing about you. Keep it in your pants. Like, be a professional. Have some integrity. What's wrong with these people, you know? Which is what this therapist did. He kept it in his pants and he, you know, managed it, which I commend him. Yeah, I think it's really easy to be lonely in this business. Um, I noticed, you know, when I managed managing the suite like sometimes i run into one of my suite mates and i realize like i am talking way too much <laughs> like i haven't had a conversation with anyone out except for my clients all day <laughs> and i'm getting a little loopy um I, and it's my job to manage that and not corner my coworkers. <laughs> so he also asked what types of clients might cause erotic countertransference to happen what do you think rebecca well, many clients are very sexually focused. I mean, I so Janina Fisher calls these the sex, drugs, and rock and roll clients. Um, I mean, I don't know. Everybody's fetishes are different. So is it the very sexual clients that people are attracted to? Is it the wounded client? I mean, I'm sure it's different for everybody. Right. But there usually is some kind of attachment disruption or abuse in their past because in a way they have been groomed to have bad boundaries on their end right? and for these relationships to go on and on and on and not say, so, you know, the story that I once was interviewing a couples counselor and had a very bad first session. I actually called you immediately and was like, do you want to tell that story? No. no. <laughs> okay. I will say that this client, this felt like a client, uh, this therapist instantly disclosed their mental health history to me and terrifying hospitalization aspects of that mental health history, which was so not even the issue on the table. And I didn't even know why it was going there. And you, I called you and I was like, what the hell just happened to me? And you said, this person is famous for doing that. Um, and, and I didn't go back to that couples counselor. Fascinatingly enough, my wife, he didn't do that to my wife and she liked him. We met separately which is probably part of this MO of why he's able to create these crazy dynamics. But then I had to process with my wife at length about why I couldn't see this person. But I knew it in the intake. You yeah. know, I imagine at a different place in my life. How did it play out later? Was it okay? Yes, we found a different therapist. But I mean with that therapist, because your wife saw him for a while? No. Oh, she just wanted to see him as? As a couples counselor. Oh, okay. And I had to explain why. But isn't it, you know, and then I was wondering, like, what is it about me that he disclosed this to me and didn't to her? And is that part of his weird splitting craziness? Um, But definitely, I knew for me, this relationship can't go on. And I think about myself at another point in my life, would I have had the strength? And I had to check out with you, like, this can't go on, right? (laughs) This is crazy. Well, with the amount of couples therapists, excellent couples therapists in (laughs) Seattle, it's just like, why... You know, if it, it, it's not like he was the only one in town, so it's just like you know, if if there's a tick, if there's a significant check mark in the box of like a concern, like just try someone else. It's a. But I also think right the dynamic of why was I pegged in the couple to tell this history? Is it right. you know like some kind of weird attachment wound that? Well, it, 
they pick it. Or just like stupidity, you know, mm-hmm. like why would you say that? Why would that jump into your head as something to say to your client in the first session? You know, it's just like, why? Um, so in response to your question, patron, about the types of clients, I would say first off is we don't want to victim blame. We don't want to. Right. This is your choice. Right. We don't want to claim that somehow it's the client's fault that therapists, a lot of them being men, but a lot of women too, are experiencing erotic countertransference. That's what we did in the past. We would say, oh, it's the client's fault, Mm -hmm. histrionic this, whatever. And we know that the therapist enters the room with their own issues. And so. And has the power in the room. Right. And so we don't want to victim blame. But having said that, in general, yeah, people, uh, there are some clients that every therapist should just be a little careful around, not like completely, you know, diagnosing them before you know them, but, but just being a little careful around people with relational traumas, particularly sexual abuse histories, who develop coping mechanisms of basically subtly seducing people as a way of keeping them close. You know, when you're young and you feel like no one loves you and no one pays attention to you and you will try a lot of different things to get people to love you and pay attention to you. And if one of the things that your father responds to is to be quote unquote flirtatious or one of the things that uh, other people respond to on the playground is to be sexual and then you get attention and then people uh, at least temporarily uh, don't reject you, then you'll learn over time, oh, well, this is what I need to do with everyone. I need to be sexual with everyone in order to, in order to keep them close, in order for them to not hurt me. And those kinds of clients will tend to – now, it's hard to uh, quantify that, obviously. Those people could be men or women or queer – they could be straight or gay or asexual. They could, you know, it's just hard to, you would have to know based on your experience with them. You know what I mean? And know what your own triggers are. I mean, I remember a teacher that I had talked about her sexual counter-transference to a client and how she had to find one unattractive thing about him and she would just stare at that thing. <laughs> so for her, it was that she hated when men wore diamond stud earrings and this guy did that. <laughs> she would t- spend the entire session staring at his earlobe and his diamond stud <laughs> and thinking about how unattractive he was. <laughs> That's hilarious. All right. Well, that does it for that episode. Thanks for joining me, Rebecca. It's always a pleasure. And please take care of yourself out there because... Someone out there needs you. That's a good one. <laughs> I was just thinking, um, so Seattle lost a great comedian this week. We lost Peggy Platt, who's part of Dos Falopias with Lisa Koch. And uh, you never know when someone who's really awesome and makes the world a better place, it's going to be their time to go. So give a lot of yourself to others if you can. 